many years we've lived in Victoria, they really don't know what to do with snow. They don't know how to drive in it. Uh, they don't know how to get around in it. And they don't deal with that. They work in what I call the biblical principle of snow. The Lord gives, and the Lord can take away. And that's just kind of how he handles them. It was an interesting week in the city. And it was. And um, I know many of you have, have prayed for me. I've had, I, a couple of weeks ago, I had um, eye surgery. And my right eye, this coming week, they go back in and they do my left eye. And I'm all going well. I'll be here next Sunday morning. So if you remember, uh, during the week and Thursday morning, um, I would appreciate that very much. And thank you. Um, I was a student for some years at the University of Glasgow. Um, when we lived there and I was growing up and all those things, studied uh, English literature, philosophy, and a few other things. And on the code of the arms of the University of Glasgow, there are three words in Latin. They are the motto, the, the university, the university motto is three words. Via veritas vita, which is Latin for the way, the truth, and the life. And they come from the Gospel of John, and as you'll know and you'll hear this morning, there are quotes from Jesus about the very core of his meaning. I have a feeling that the majority of students and faculty at the University of Glasgow today do not know where that quotation came from, that it came from the Bible. They would be horrified, and they would probably petition to have it changed. But they don't know that, and so via veritas vita, the way, the truth, and the life have remains. Let me take you back to about 2,000 years ago in an upper room in the city of Jerusalem. Um, we're sitting in on a dialogue between Jesus and some of his disciples. It's really kind of a Q&A, a question and answer session. If you have a Bible this morning or whoever you track with me on a Sunday morning, turn to John chapter 13. John 13, verse, sorry, verse 36. And you'll realize very quickly that it is a Q&A session. Questions and answers as the disciples talk to Jesus. And you have to learn to ignore the chapter headings. Get to chapter 14, just ignore that. They were not part of the original Bible. They sometimes sort of get in the road. So just learn to ignore them. John 13, 36. Simon Peter asked the Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Lord, why cannot I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. You get that impetuous spirit that comes out of Peter. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down for your life? For me, very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And those words, of course, were to come back and really haunt Peter. And then you read through into John, what we call John 14. Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms, but we're not so. What I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, so that you also may be where I am. You know the place to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So this passage gives us a context for what we'll look at this Sunday and the next uh, two Sundays. Um, the way, the truth, and the light. And if you haven't done so, may I really encourage you um, to pick up and to get one of our study guides or download it from the internet and do some reading along with the Sundays um, week by week. So these, these three words, the way, the truth, and the light, 
deserve our serious attention to what they really mean out of the heart of Jesus. Jesus says, I'm the way. In one sense, a very, very simple thing. And yet any attempt to unpack it, to explore its depth, will quickly make us aware of just what Jesus might have meant by this. There are many, many lines of thought in that. This morning, for our next 30 minutes, we will really follow just a few. Let me suggest to you that we could begin by saying, Jesus is the way to knowing God. Probably no philosopher has articulated an atheistic worldview other than Friedrich Nietzsche. Perhaps to be followed in our day by Christopher Hitchens, who died just a month or so ago. But few people have had such a radical impact on the thinking of the 20th century than Nietzsche. Nietzsche, you see, shaped the thinking of Hitler. And through Hitler and Mussolini, and think for a moment, all of the evil that spewed out of their lives into our world. And it came from a life and a mind of not knowing God. When our society tries to live in the belief that God is dead, as Nietzsche talked about, it faces at least three impossible questions. Number one, where does morality come from? Without God, we face the devastating inability to construct an ethical theory of our lives which is reasonable, consistent, and coherent. Many of us are parents. We want schools and our community to have and to teach moral values. But where do we find these values without God? The second thing is, where does hope come from? We're faced with the sad reality that when all we see is all there is, our lives then are mere fragments of time with no sense of eternity. Where does our hope come from? And the last question is, what is the meaning of life? The existential philosopher Albert Camus in France, the psychologist Viktor Frankl, who survived the concentration camps, both really came to the conclusion that the search for meaning, who am I and why am I here, is the fundamental question for life for all of us. Because without meaning, without hope, we're really consigned to see life to being reduced to those well-known lines that you may know out of Shakespeare's Macbeth. When he says, life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury and signifying nothing. And so Dostoevsky, the philosopher, is right. If God is dead, then everything, everything is permissible. Rabbi Zacharias, who is a Christian apologist of our generation and day, says the heaviest price exacted from a society living without God is paid for by its young people. You got that? It's the young people who pay the heaviest price for a society living without God. I think we see that. So in the, in the riddle of the enigma about what life is and what it's all about, into this, that's Jesus. Because I am the way. I am the way to knowing who God is and what he, uh, what he is all about. So how does this God reveal himself? Very quickly this morning, in a very superficial way. Creation, we know, is the first step in which God has taken some careful steps to declare to us who he is, how great thou art. song we sung just a few minutes ago. So when we look at creation, when we see the world around us, we see the footprints and the fingerprints of God being left for us. 
That's why the Psalms shout out, the heavens declare the glory of God. Creation is the first movement in the symphony of revelation of God to us. And that only takes us so far. This revelation, this unveiling, continues of the words and the lives of the prophets. And then it comes, as we'll see in a moment, to a climax in the person of Jesus. That's why the writer of Hebrews begins and he says, In this path, God spoke to our ancestors, so the prophets, in many ways and various times. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. who he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. He says the Son is the radiance, the brightness of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. And then the book of Colossians adds to it about Jesus when it says, Jesus is the image, the word is the icon of the invisible God. The closest idea we have to that in English is really the word photograph. And so maybe you carry a photograph around in your wallet, of a spouse or a child or a grandchild or a close friend, and you say, well, you see my friend, and God is saying that the photograph he has left us in the world is the person in the heart and the spirit of Jesus. That's why Jesus responds to Philip when he says, when you see me, you're looking at the Father. When you see me, you're looking at God. Because he's really saying to Philip, my life and my spirit and all you see in me, that is the photograph of God which has been left in the world. And it's summed up for us in, the, in what we call the prologue of the Gospel of John. No one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in the closest relationship with God, <coughs> he has made him known. He has declared him. He has revealed him. He has expressed him. And so Jesus came to explain who God is and what he's like. He's the way to understanding the Father. That's why when you go back to John 13, verse 8, Philip says, show us the Father and there will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen the Father, Jesus says, has seen me. You look at me, he says, you're looking at God. And so we do not find today a life, we do not find the meaning of life apart from God. We do not know who God is apart from Jesus. So much more to be said. We need to take another path this morning. Jesus is the way to understanding ourselves. Um, your congregation listens well. I've learned that over the months that I've been here. This morning we're going to ask you to track with me, and we may seem to start a ways away, but we're going to come back to where we, we need to be. And I'd like you this morning to think about what it means to be a Christian. Perhaps for you this morning in a new and different way. Without faith in a personal God, we really find ourselves as cosmic orphans. At least three kinds of lostness get experienced today. First of all, no one is in charge. Without God, no one's in charge. It's as though we stand at the top of, a, of an enormous pinnacle of scientific discovery and human achievement. But in a moment of panic, we just suddenly find ourselves that no one's in church. We become like little children just lost in a mall. We struggle with the meaning of our lives, feeling that we can, we're, we're orphans in this vast cosmos. 
You see, without the knowledge of a personal God, we discover at the end of our knowledge we're lost in this cosmic, cosmic ghost town. Secondly, we're lost in the vastness of the universe. We're told today that the, the earth is a tiny speck amongst hundreds of millions of planetary existence. Our galaxy has a diameter of 100,000 light years. Remember the velocity of light is 186,000 miles per second. How trivial that really makes us today. Compared to the person in the Middle Ages who knew that the earth was the center of the universe and heaven was no more than 400 miles off. And our world now has become so, so much larger. Lost in the universe. And thirdly, we're lost as victims of chance. If evolution is correct, and we're no more the chance occurrence of a cosmic accident, what a crushing defeat this is for our ego and for our search for meaning. So who am I? And why am I here? You know, the Bible presents to us some of the most profound issues in very simple pictures. And this morning, if you'll follow me, we need to create a proper biblical anthropology, an understanding of who we are, but which is based and finds its context in the scriptures. You see, the Bible sees us and, undef and defines us as whole people. A single person, we're single beings, a seamless tapestry of the spiritual and the physical. And we discover and we know only who we are in our relatedness to God. There's a phrase for this. If you don't know it, let me encourage you to add it to your vocabulary this morning. That phrase is Imago Dei. You need to know that we are Imago Dei. It means we're made in the image of God. Let me read you out of the book of Genesis. And so God created man in his own image. Man here, by the way, means not just male, it means humanity. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Those are three marvelous lines of Hebrew poetry. And they give us the mystery and the marvel of who we are. Let's unpack them for a moment. So God created man, remember that's humanity, not male in his own image. It calls us, first of all, to our sanctity. In Imago Dei, we find sanctity. Life is a sacred gift. And that protects the unborn and the elderly and the handicapped, each of whom could be regarded as a nuisance to be discarded. So abortion is the answer of our pragmatic, humanistic culture to the issue of an unwanted pregnancy. A new baby can do little for itself, takes a great deal of care. So if we define our, our identity and our value in terms of pragmatic activity, what I can do, what I can contribute to society, a new baby has little value, especially if it's unwanted and unplanned. It's really the same issue that's true for people at the other end of the spectrum of life. If we value people only for their activity, what do we do with aged parents and people who are no longer able to look after themselves? 
but they have active bodies, but their minds are now lost in the fog and in the haze of Alzheimer's. If their identity and their value as people is to be measured only by their productivity, there frankly is little room for them. But if we see people as valuable, young and old, because God declares them to be, their attitude must be different. And so once we visit God's garden, we discover that identity and value do not come merely from some human utilitarianism, what we can do, but rather they flow from the stamp of God on each one of our lives. And each new life, from its very beginning to the very end, is stamped with the Mago Dei. One of the marks of authentic community is to see and to endorse each person's value, not on the basis of what they can do, that's the creed of spiritual activism, but rather just on the essence of who they are. That is the gospel of spiritual acceptance. Next line. In the image of God, he created him. That gives us secondly identity. Who I am in the image of God. It means that we define and we understand ourselves only in our relatedness to God rather than our relatedness to one another. Otherwise, we see ourselves thinking as better than someone or less than someone else. But the essence of our identity as people comes from our relatedness, significance to God. Who am I? What gives Tom Cowan's life significance? shared with you before that perhaps one of the greatest expressions of brokenness in our society today, I believe, is that we first define ourselves in terms of who we are, sorry, in what we do, rather than who we are. Because we do not know how to define ourselves in terms of who we are. Out of a time of great pain many years ago, the details are not important to you. I came to realize that I had no identity apart from my work. And one day I broke down into tears. And out of that pain as I kind of rebuilt my life, I began to realize again that the greatest seduction in our society is that we, we can succeed in what we do or we fail at who we are. But if you walk in God's garden in the image of God, you have to find another way. Put it very simply, it is so easy for us in a city like Vancouver or Victoria to draw our identity from our jobs, from activity, rather from a vital relationship with our God. One of the gifts God gives us when we walk in his garden is that he calls us back to the truth that we are relational beings. We are designed and meant for relationships with him and relationships with one another. He gives us the capacity to rest, to laugh, to take time off, to live reflectively. He gives us the capacity and time to love. The third line of the poetry, Imagrudi, he gives our lives their sexuality. Male and female, he created them. You see, Imagrudi, the image of God, involves our sexuality as male and female. Sex was not something that came after the fall. Our sexuality is part of our creation in the image of God. 
we don't choose to be male or female. That is embedded in our essential DNA. But we can choose to discover and to develop what it means to be masculine or what it means to be feminine. That's different. Uh, we're not merely an interesting collection of cells and each life in some unique way is stamped with the hand of God. That is what gives our lives our sense of sacredness. We are a mysterious fusion of body and soul, physical and spiritual, woven together in what we call this seamless tapestry of being human. And God clothes our sexuality with a sense of sanctity. And people who see themselves as whole people begin to see themselves as holy people. I feel a, just an, a deep, deep sadness when in Vancouver or Victoria or somewhere driving I see a young girl standing on the side of the road perhaps downtown standing in a provocative pose. And she may think that she's only selling her body. But what she does not know is that she's selling her whole being. She's prostituting her whole self, all of herself, whether she knows it or not. It's because the gift of sexuality from God is not merely something we do. It is who we are. Teenagers and young adults in our culture who feel the pressure to become sexually active long before they should need to know that there is no such thing as casual sex. When we engage in sex, it involves our whole being. We are a psychosomatic unity. Our spirituality gives depth and dimension to our physical lives and our physical lives earth and incarnate our spiritual nature saving us from some kind of mystical escapism. All this and more makes the Mago Dei, the image of God in us. God's gift of sexuality, we see, becomes twisted into promiscuity, pornography, and prostitution. And so the gift in the garden is broken. But then onto the stage of history steps Jesus. He is the Son of God, do you remember the other phrase? He's also the Son of Man. Jesus is fully man as God intended man, humanity to be. Jesus walks in dependence upon God as God intended us to live. Jesus invites us to follow him as the way that we're supposed to go. So who or what is a Christian? Think about this. Becoming a Christian, following Jesus. A Christian is someone more than just believes in Jesus. <laughs> a Christian is someone who is recovering what it means to be made in the image of God. Imago Dei. We are being restored to being the kind of people that God fully called and intended us to be in the first place. You understand? Adam had died. And it was lost. And sin sent out of the garden. Jesus comes to be the Son of God and also the Son of Man. And so, in following Jesus is the way. We are being restored to being the kinds of people that God intended us to be in the first place.
Our salvation is not merely a way to heaven. Our salvation is also the way to live on earth. To live with humility before God. To walk with dependence upon God. To follow Jesus as the way because he knew how to live under God. And so you see, Christians are truly human people. As Christians, we are called to enjoy the life that God intended us to have. And Jesus is the way for that. Praise out of Colossians. Talks about this new life. But now you must rid yourself of all of these things. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to one another. Since you put off the old self with all its practices. You see, these kinds of attitudes, rage and anger and malice and slander, they are subhuman. They do not belong to people who are living a life under God. But, says Colossians, you put on the new self. Jesus, who is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. It's Colossians 3 and 10. It's saying to us that when we follow Jesus as the way, we follow Jesus as the way to knowing ourselves, becoming the kind of man and woman whom God fully intended us to be in the first place. But that image, that model was broken, and a new prototype came. Adam, the first prototype was gone. A new prototype came. And this prototype is on Jesus. You can follow that more in Romans chapter 5. And our new self is the restoration of being made in the image of God. And Jesus is the way to know what all of this means. So to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, does not make us into some spiritual super person. Rather, it recovers us, recovers for us what it means to be made in the image of God. You're being a human again. And Jesus opens up the way for this discovery. Being a Christian is the way to recover what it means to be truly human and loving and gracious and kind and dependent and obedient and walk before God. Finally, Jesus is the way to heaven and how to get there. I think we can survive without a lot of things. But we can't survive without hope. Sometimes we just very glibly say, well, as long as there's life, there's hope. I think it made more sense if we turned that around. And we said, as long as there's hope, there's life. We can't survive without hope. Remember above the entrance to Dante's Inferno was the inscription, Abandon Hope, all ye who enter here. Some years ago, Harry and I, a couple of times, were privileged to visit Egypt on our way to Israel. And in our day in Cairo, we visited the Egyptian Museum. And we saw all of the chariots and the gold and the furniture and the personal possessions that a pharaoh would take with him into the afterlife. And sometimes even his wives and his servants were entombed with him. It's a tough job. Because he's going to need them also in the afterlife. So their understanding of what Rebianus was shadowy and vague and full of fear and unknown. 
And it's against these shadowy opinions and uncertain beliefs that many people have even today about death. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Don't get anxious. Don't get worked up about this. You believe in God? Do we believe in God? Then he says, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. But one of the left told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. One thing is certain about each of our lives is that one day we will all die. A lot of people try to explore all of the details of what that will be like and what lies ahead. Much of it, I think, frankly, to be honest, still remains a mystery to us. It seems to me that we should want to be surprised by the awesome beauty of heaven and the person of God. Wouldn't you want to be surprised by that? Wouldn't you want to be surprised by that? Hello? Yeah, thank you. Whoa, hold on to your way. Remember this. Jesus had lived there before. Jesus knew what it was like. Jesus knew what it was talking about. Jesus knew what lay ahead of him at the other side of the cross. He knew where he was going. And that's why he says in John 17, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus knew what he was going back to. But if you would want just to stand on your tiptoes for a moment and catch a glimpse of what lies ahead, Here's a hint. Here's a preview. As far as the human eye can see, and I do stand with me. 